3: Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you have tuned in to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really anything on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585 if you are outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in the car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. And everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, so we don't have anything really to talk about. So we'll get right to some questions. This first one is a question from Jenny. She says, I have a genuine question about the rapture of the church. My research shows this theory didn't start until the 1800s. And this was not a theory held by the disciples and apostles of the early church, nor those who knew Jesus personally while he walked the earth. If this is true, why is it so widely believed now? I understand the passages that allude to it, but I often wonder how many believe this because they were told rather than doing their own research. Jenny, a couple of things that are really important. We need to be careful what we read on the Internet what we read from people who have an agenda. All you need to do is go to the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. You want to know who started the the, the idea of a, a rapture of the church? It was the Apostle Paul himself. And it was a mystery that was given to him uh, by Jesus himself. It was a revelation Uh, Jesus himself actually referred to it. John chapter 14, just sort of a a bit of a hint. Um, um, uh, In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will take you to be with me where I am. Now, that's a clear reference to the rapture of the church without any of the details. In 1 Corinthians 15, Uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, listen, I tell you a mystery. Again, the mystery that had not yet been known. Um, We will not all die, but we will all be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. um, We will be caught up to be with Jesus in the air. So that's the rapture of the church. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. Now, One of the things, and there's always people looking for contrary information. You're right about one thing. The rapture, though it was taught and believed by the apostles. Paul says, we who are still alive, in writing to the Thessalonians, we who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The idea there is very simply that that he expected Jesus to return for his church in his lifetime. Now, we know that didn't happen. We have the benefit of history's perspective. But the reality, Jenny, is that Paul and all of the other apostles, because Jesus gave them the, the, the information, they were uh, rapture believers. The Bible clearly teaches it, and the fact that the church turned away from it, uh, the church got away from uh, believing in supernatural things, the church got away from that that expectation that Jesus was coming soon. In Revelation chapter 3.10, Jesus says uh, that those who believe will be taken away from all of the terrible things, the great tribulation that's going to happen uh, in this world. That was still written um, by the Apostle John in the first century. Uh, It was very late in the first century, but the first century nonetheless. Uh, And so they all believed it, and that's what they taught. The fact that the church didn't believe it or didn't practice it doesn't negate what the Bible teaches. You can go back to the early church fathers, and they had all kinds of things wrong. In fact, if you go to the prophecy of Daniel, he talks about knowledge will increase in the end. And what he means is in the very end days, knowledge will increase. In other words, these doctrines will be opened up again and we'll know them. So the idea that Darby is the one who revived it was simply Darby reading the Bible. Um, let me refer a couple of books to you, Jenny. Um, there's a, a really great book uh, by John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. And it's, you can, it, there's two of them. Actually, his commentary on Revelation, and then there's a commentary about um, eschatology. Um, both of those uh, books are, are available to you. Um, um, there are plenty of others. Um, but we believe it because that 's what the Bible teaches now there 's a lot of things the first century or not the first century church necessarily but 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 the second and third and fourth and fifth century churches, and even to the middle ages, they believed a lot of things that we don 't believe um, that 's what happened with the Crusades. Uh, it was in three thirteen a d that Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the world, and as the Roman Empire. Uh, King, he could do that very thing. Uh, so there was a lot of things that they believed wrong. Now, why we go back to church history as our standard, instead of saying the Bible is our standard, that's where we get into trouble. So, uh, Jenny, all you have to do is read the Bible, uh, take it at face value. That's what it says. That's why it's so widely believed now. Now, one other comment on this, Jenny. Um, the rapture theory, and again, because we're to be looking for the return of the Lord. that's That much is clearer throughout scriptures. Um, the rapture sort of took new life on back in the, in the late 60s or early 70s uh, during a revival, the Jesus people revival. And uh, people were looking, genuinely looking for the return of the Lord. It's when people stop looking for the return of the Lord, Jenny. That's when we find ourselves in trouble. And that's just what's happened throughout the history of the church. But Jesus taught a rapture, uh, at least hinted at it. The apostle Paul taught it. The other apostles believed it. And that's what was practiced. They were looking for Jesus to come and deliver them from this earth. So, Jenny, I, I can't be more clear than that. I can do one other thing. If you would go to our website, Calvarysa.com, and go to uh, my studies on the Book of Revelation, the the first study in chapter four. That's when uh, metaphorically the rapture happens in the Book of Revelation. Uh, you'll go to that my the very first study. I do a very detailed study on eschatology. Uh, on the rapture of the church, uh when and why and how uh and um uh, that that tape is probably fifty minutes long. Uh, my notes are also there, so uh you can you can look at it, but again, church history has never been and will never be um, um, a good barometer of what's true, what the Bible teaches at all so uh Jenny, study. Open your Bible, and believe it. And if you find anything in your study of church history that is in that is contrary to what the Bible teaches, well, that's just places where they were in error and they were wrong. Jenny, thank you very, very much for the question. Here is a question from Jennifer. Um, Pastor on the two witnesses in Revelation, I say one of them is Enoch. Do you agree? Jenny Jennifer, rather, I do not agree. Uh, I'm I'm one hundred percent confident that the two witnesses are Elijah. Now we know that for sure because the Bible says that Elijah must come before that great and terrible day of the Lord, and, and Elijah will definitely be one of them. But Moses is the other one. And if you look at what the witnesses do, um the the way they they encounter their enemies. Those who are trying to kill him, they respond like Moses did and like Elijah did. Um, Jesus said, the law and the prophets testify of me. Moses is the Old Testament figure that is uh, representative of the law. Elijah. With the J, Elijah was the sort of the prince of prophets, and so it's the law and the prophets, and their job is to testify of Jesus. Now I realize, Jennifer, why some people say it's Enoch because Enoch uh, and Elijah are the two only two people who who didn't die. Um, Elijah of course taken up to heaven in a in a chariot and uh, Enoch was walking with God and then he wasn't and so people say well it must be Enoch um, that would be contrary I think Jennifer uh, to the intent and the purpose the mission of the two witnesses uh, in the book of Revelation so um, Elijah is one of them the other one is Moses the law and the prophets testify of me and Moses represented the law. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate the question. Here's a question from Larry. He wants to know what's wrong with the doctrine of limited atonement. Well, what's wrong with it, Larry, is that it can't be true. Um, John 3.16, the most famous New Testament verse. Everybody knows it. uh, For God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved the elect or God so loved the chosen. It says for God so loved the world. His Death on a cross was efficacious, in other words, sufficient for everyone who's ever lived. It is only efficient for those who say yes to the invitation to believe and have eternal life. So limited atonement simply says that Jesus did not die for the world. And and in order to do that they've got to do all kinds of gymnastics with the with the Bible. It's not the world. The world doesn't mean the world. The world means the elect and here's how we know. But but that's simply bad exegesis. That's eisegesis, in fact, reading into it. And the reason they're doing that, Larry, is they're 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 superimposing a a, a reformed view or a Calvinistic view uh of systematic theology on what the Bible actually says. In other words, I believe that there's only uh, a few Jesus only died for the sins of the elect. So I'm going to try to twist scripture to prove it. So uh, that's what's wrong with limited atonement. It's simply not true. It is Um, uh, contrary to what the Bible teaches about Jesus' mission on earth it's contrary to his nature and his character and uh, pretty much Larry when you get into that you're really really treading on ground that is not very firm at all so that's what's wrong with limited atonement Um, to surmise that Jesus died only for a few a chosen few is to turn Jesus into uh, an arbitrary uh, decider, an unjust decider of who's saved and who's not saved. And by the way, when you bring that, that uh, uh, approach up with um, Calvinists, what they'll say is, well, well, who are you to question God? He's the, the potter and we're, we're just the clay, so the, the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. But he can't do anything that is outside Larry, of his character or his nature. Thank you very, very much for the question. We'd love your phone calls today. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Andy says, was Mary Magdalene a prostitute or the woman caught in adultery? No, Andy, that is not the case. Now, I realize that that uh, Catholic tradition uh, passes that along But there's no biblical warrant at all for that. Mary Magdalene, we know, lived a horrible life. She was inhabited by seven demons. But she is, if you look at the scriptures, very distinct and separate from the woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, Was she a prostitute when she was possessed by seven demons? Um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And I think it is unfair of us to um, impose that on her. she was a woman with a past, like you have a past, Andy, and like I have a past, and Jesus died for her. and when uh, she met Jesus the first time any man ever looked at her with any other intent than lust or fulfilling their own selfish desires, um, she fell in love with Jesus. Now, fell in love with not in the... Way that Dan Brown and his books would suggest that they were married, uh, she just was somebody who had been forgiven much and so she loved much and there is not a single piece in our Bible, not a single portion of scripture that would suggest that she was anything other than exceptionally faithful uh, after she was uh, after she met Jesus and was born again. So, Andy, I hope that helps. You know, incidentally, uh, one of my big problems with The Chosen as a series is the way that they portrayed Mary Magdalene. Uh, I think it was unfair. I think it was unnecessary. Uh, They portrayed her as a backslider at some point and on the verge of not coming Jesus. That is uh, a a dramatic reinterpretation of what the Bible says. Uh, Unfortunately... It is unfair, and I think uh, did uh, not only Mary Magdalene an Injustice, but I think um, comes close, at least for me, for ruining The Chosen uh, as a series. I think some of their characterizations, Peter as a gambler, um, uh, Matthew as uh, somebody on the the, the autism um, spectrum, Mm -hmm. um, and and some of the others. I just... why they would do that I don't have any idea but they did. Raoul says what is the falling away that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. Uh, let me read it Raoul and then I'll talk about it. Paul is is telling the the the, the Thessalonians Uh, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion, that's the falling away or the apostasia the the apostasy occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Uh, There was a lot of false teaching in and around Thessalonica. Uh, Raoul, because uh, people were dying, they got tired of, of uh, you know they were waiting for the Lord to come back, and as people were dying, uh, there were some false teachers saying, "Well, I guess they just missed the rapture, and so uh, they're just out of luck; they're they're, they're not going to be in heaven." And and Paul is telling them, "Don't worry about that. These things are going to happen first. The first is the rebellion of the falling away." Now, Raoul, this is just me. I, I believe with all of my heart that we're watching that happen right now. Uh, At the end of August in 2023, we're watching the falling away. I think we've been seeing it for a long time. We're falling away from the Word of God. I was um, uh, in a conversation briefly with a pastor today uh, who um, has decided that the Bible is uh, is is really not the word of God, that it contains the word of God and it contains truth, but it's not literal and we can't take the stories as literal fact. And um, um, that describes this apostasy, this falling away. Um, they're, they're rebelling against the word of God and the authority that God intended for his word. The truth is, if we don't have God's word, if the Bible's not God's word, we have no standard at all. And then what happens, and that's the case with this man that I was in conversation with, uh, he's just decided to make Jesus whoever he wants him to be. And he could say, well, I love him more now than I ever loved him before. Well, that's because you've made him in your image instead of remembering that we were made in his image. And that's really important, and that rebellion has occurred. We see churches professing Christian churches, Raoul, who are affirming sexually immoral, aberrant behavior as being normal, even positive. Why? Because they've thrown away the word of God. That falling away has already be- begun. Uh, We see people believing things that are impossible to believe. Men can become women, and women can become men. Instead of two genders, there's, by some accounts, more than a hundred genders. So much so that we're changing our English language to accommodate the lies. That's the falling away, or the apostasia. That's what that refers to. So we're seeing that. And the day of the Lord has not come yet, but is coming soon. And then the second thing is the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, in this particular case, they're talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, they're talking about the day of the Lord when he comes back in judgment. That's Revelation chapter 19. Not talking specifically about the rapture of the church, but the second coming of Jesus when he'll come and judge the world. Um. The man of lawlessness is a reference to the man we call the Antichrist, and he will be revealed, and, and Raoul. he won't be revealed to, to those of us who are believers, because we will be with Jesus, but after the rapture, and the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is revealed, that's when the world is going to be plunged into the Great Tribulation. So that's what the falling away is all about. Good question. Thank you very, very much. And for all of you, you've seen we've had already a couple of questions about uh, eschatology, the, the study of the end times. It's really important. Uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. And those pastors that will say things like, well, you know, it doesn't matter when he comes. It doesn't matter when we're going to be raptured. Uh, pre, post. He, and, and people say jokingly, I'm panned. It's all going to pan out in the end. It's very important. And it's important because we're to be looking not for the Antichrist. We're to be looking for Jesus Christ and he's coming for his church, not to the earth. He's going to bring us up. We're going to be caught up in the air and we'll meet Jesus there. And then we'll be with Jesus during the last seven years of history on earth. It's also important because Jesus said a wicked and a lazy servant says, my master delays his coming and I don't think anybody listening to this radio show wants to be described as a wicked and lazy servant. But the, the man or the woman says, oh, it doesn't matter when he's coming or or even if there's going to be a rapture. Uh, the only thing that matters is I just love Jesus. Well, unless you love what he loves, you don't really love him at all. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Raul, for the question. Let me see. We're in about four minutes, I think, for this half of the program. Um, Raymond, I'm going to take your question on the other side of the break because that could take a little long. Kevin says... You've talked about saving faith and living faith. Can you explain the difference? Um, Kevin, I think it's an important distinction to make. Uh, Saving faith is that faith that, that allowed us to believe, first, that we were sinners, that Jesus has the answer. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And when he convicts us of that and we respond in faith... That's the faith that saves. Living faith is the faith to trust God every day. I said this recently. I don't know if it was this weekend or the weekend before, um, or this past week, weekend, or the weekend before that. Uh, I told our church that you know it's it's amazing so many Christians can trust God for salvation for eternity, but they can't trust God for Monday. And the reason they can't trust God for Monday is. Um, because um, their faith is weak. They start worrying about all kinds of things. They're fearful about things. Instead of trusting God and waiting on Him, they take matters into their own hands. And so that's living faith. Uh, we've got to trust God every day throughout the day. Um, Paul, in writing to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says, "...the grace of God that brings salvation." This is the distinction the grace of God brings salvation has appeared, and yet the, the, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present age. So living faith is the kind of faith that says, okay, Lord, I want to live to please you. I don't want to live to please me. I want to live to please you. And as we live to please the Lord, Kevin, then our faith will grow and we grow from faith to faith, one degree of faith to the next degree of faith. That's what really matters, Raymond, that we are growing. I'm sorry, Kevin. That's what really matters, that we're growing in our faith day by day. And and when we get up every day, we surrender. Jesus, today is your day. Uh, what about me? And what about today? And that's what it means to trust God every single day. And Kevin, that's the only way that we really grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ and of his will for our lives. So saving faith brings us into the family of God. And living faith takes us through the process of sanctification, which is just the process of being made more like Jesus every day as we surrender to his will and his plan for our life. The man or the woman who says, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, but they aren't trusting God for the day-to-day things that happen in life. That man or that woman is the one who's missing out. I'm not suggesting that he or she's not saved, but that's the person that is really missing out on being in the middle of God's perfect will for their lives. And that's where we want to be, Kevin. Thank you for the question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to stand up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I love this question, Raymond. I, did, I didn't want to cut you short at the end of the last half hour, or so we'll take it at the top while we wait for uh, phone calls. Raymond says, will you please talk about abiding in Christ and what that looks like practically? Raymond, out of all the things I get to teach and talk about, this is my very favorite thing. Here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we have a theme for our church. It's just be with Jesus. And that's what it looks like practically. Jesus said, if you abide in him, he will abide in us. And that abiding is an intimate, a personal relationship uh, that, that covers every facet of our life with Jesus Christ. And what it means, Raymond, is that we surrender. It means that we're willing to say no to what we want. So that we can say yes to what he wants for us. I do that every single day, Raymond. I've done it every single day of my my now more than 32 years uh, with Jesus Christ. I get up in the morning. I steal this from Genesis chapter 32. I, I tell Jesus uh, after asking for forgiveness of my sins and greeting him in the morning and giving him thanks. I tell him, Lord, today of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit in your name and for your glory. And then, Raymond, what I do is I offer my right hand. Jesus is my right hand. We know that the the symbol of power biblically is the right hand. And so, so I actually go through the motions and do this. I offer my right hand in faith. I take his hand in faith. And I say, and I will not let go until you bless me. And then I tell him, because I'm honest with him, I can't let go. If I do, I'll ruin everything that you've done, Lord. And then I'll take my left hand. I'm on Paula's right side. Now, most of the time she's not with me when I do this, but, but like this morning she was. Uh, I'll, I'll take my, my left hand and say, uh, Lord, I take Paula's hand. We're one flesh. And we will not let go until you bless us, until we finished our course together. Help us to finish well better than we started, pleasing to you, and always and only bringing you honor and glory. Now, that means nothing if it's just something I say. But for me, Raymond, that's sort of my kickstart. And I want to walk with Jesus. I want to be in his presence. I want to be holding his hand all day long, every day. And that's what abiding in Christ is. Paul and I, we had a Time to pray uh, this morning for a woman in our church who's going through some difficult things, and um, you know I wanted to be able to, to. Lord, do you have anything that you want me to say to her? And and I want to prepare for those things. I don't want to just assume that. Well, I'm just going to give them, you know, the same old philosophy, the biblical philosophy that I always do. I want I want a fresh word. Uh, I ask the Lord for words of wisdom and words of knowledge. I ask God to speak to my heart about anything that I need to be prepared about. Paula reminded me this morning when we were walking and praying that um, I always teach that whatever we encounter, Jesus will have prepared us for it if we let him do it. And in order to do that, you've got to be abiding in Christ. Raymond, being with Jesus personally, um, I used to, as a, as a young Christian, used to call it practicing the presence of the Lord. I didn't know there was a book by Brother Lawrence, um, um, it, the, the same title. It's certainly a lot older than I am. Um, but but it was just being with Jesus. I'd go into, as a new believer now, I'd go into a restaurant or to McDonald's or something. And uh, I would I would set up a chair across from me. Uh, And that would be where Jesus sat so we could talk. So I, I got in the habit very early in my walk with Jesus of just hanging out with him. You know, a lot of us, we have trouble with that because he's invisible and, yeah, we know he's real, but Jesus is not anything other than the most real thing in my life every single day. And it's because I determined in my heart a long time ago that I wanted Jesus to be with me, and in order for that to happen, I had to be with him. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. And, Raymond, that gives me more peace and more comfort in good times and in terrible times than any other thing. When I lay down to sleep at night, I'm resting in the Lord's hand. And so that's what it means to abide in him, And practically, it means you realizing that Jesus is first in your life, more important than anything or anyone, that you love him more, that your goal every day is to please him. Now, the book of Revelation, chapter four, verse 11, uh, it's clearer, more clear if you read uh, the King James, but it says that that the purpose of our lives is that everything is is to be done for him. And literally in, in the Greek, it's toward him. That means everything we do in our lives every day has to be toward Jesus for his glory, to accomplish his will in our lives. And Raymond, that's what abiding in Christ looks like. And it is the single most important thing, I think, that any believer can master. Now, when I say master, nobody can really master it till we get to be with him in heaven. But... It's something that we need to participate in and practice every single day. It's not something that we can just sort of blow off. Uh, Raymond, my last thought on this is it's so real to me that if I would go an hour without thinking about the Lord, you know, we get busy, we have other things on our mind, uh, you know, we go to work, we do those things. But but if I would go an hour and and not be talking to the Lord... I'd feel terrible. What 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 did I miss, Lord? I'm so sorry, Jesus. I don't want to talk to them. I want to talk to you. You know, I got a lot of stuff going on in my head all the time, and there are times when when I know I'm going to have a, a meeting with somebody, a conversation with somebody, and I'm asking Lord for wisdom, and suddenly I'll I'll start having a conversation, and I have to stop and say, Lord, Lord, I don't want to talk to them now. I'm talking to you, and it's one of those. It's one of those things where. Uh, Even picking up a cell phone when I'm talking with the Lord is an interruption. So, Raymond, that's what it means. Thank you very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, lots of Christians are speaking out against the Chosen on social media. Why are they doing that? Uh, Anonymous, I'm not really tuned into social media and could care less. Um, I think you and I, we ought to form our own opinions um, about something like The Chosen. I think generally it's a it's a, it's a good thing. Um, but the reality is the nature of social media is that people criticize everything. Uh, there's a lot about The Chosen that I have trouble with. I mentioned some of them in an earlier question. Um, but I think if we remember what it is, we remember that The Chosen is a... Um, uh, a, a dramatization. Uh, it's not intended to be Bible at all. Uh, I don't know how old you are, Anonymous, but um, when I grew up, the, the the movie I really watched was the greatest story ever told. Uh, when I got saved, you know, I'd sit there and try to pick it apart. Well, that didn't happen then. That happened later, and 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 uh, you know, I had to chill out because. It wasn't intended to be Bible. They're trying to tell a story. Well, that's what The Chosen is doing. I love the story that they're telling. I don't like some of the things that they've done to that story. And as a pastor, I realize that some people are not able to differentiate between the dramatization and and the Bible itself. And if they're getting their Bible, and I've had I've had Christians who love the chosen come to me and say, "Well, well, Jesus said this," or when when Jesus, and they'll quote the chosen instead of quoting the Bible, and it's simply not true. And and they get in their mind. That's how vivid um, pictures can be. We get in our mind that something happened a certain way, that um, um, the chosen depicted it. And and that's not at all what the Bible says. I'll give you one example, and then I'll move on. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is um, one of my two biggest problems with the Chosen. The Sermon on the Mount, they had Jesus practicing his message. Can you imagine? He was practicing it for days. This is my most important. It was sort of like his coming out party as a preacher. And Matthew was helping him. And he would practice with Matthew, and Matthew would make suggestions. And it didn't happen that way at all. We know that Jesus only said what he heard his father say, so he was getting direct information. And, and uh, so, so don't be one of those who criticize it, because I do believe that it's something that the Lord can use. At the same time, be sure that we're letting other people know that this is not Bible. It's a television story. It's no more Bible than Touched by an Angel was for the people that grew up um, in in my lifetime. Uh, It's just um, a neat story that I think correctly conveys or communicates the heart of God and the love of God. Uh, and, And I think overall they're doing a good job. And I think it can be useful as a tool for evangelism. But it's not the word of God. It's not inspired by God. I think uh, Dallas Jenkins does a good job overall. Thank you for the question three four zero ninety five eighty five. Our phones have been quiet this week already. Here's a question uh, from Terry. He said, Pastor Ron, how can I balance love and doctrine when dealing with false teaching? Terry, this is another hard one because false doctrine is harmful. Um, people get misled people get hurt Uh, Jesus is misrepresented and we're supposed to hate false doctrine Um, and I think when we love people we've got to deal with false doctrine Uh, I answer questions about people from time to time when I get asked on this program I, I always say I won't back down for any questions but it's not something I'm out there bashing people it's just Doctrine matters. Paul told Timothy to watch your life and doctrine closely. If we have a a doctrine that's out of balance, then our life is going to be out of balance. That's why we have to balance both love and doctrine. But make no mistake, Terry, when somebody's doctrine is wrong, the loving thing to do is correct them. Now, they may not receive it as it was intended in love, but that's not your issue. It's not your problem at all. Your problem is rightly representing Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when you do that, there are going to be people that hate you. They're going to insult you. And and when we get to that whiny place where we say, why, Lord, is this happening? I'm just trying to do what you would want me to do. Uh, Jesus' answer was, look, they did it to me. They're going to do it to you. So I think that's how we balance it. Um, Don't bash people. But believe me, there's nothing wrong at all Um, done in love uh, correcting people's doctrine. And I get questions quite frequently on this program about those kind of things and the people who are teaching false doctrine. Uh, Be angry at the false doctrine. When you get a chance, somebody who believes in false doctrine, correct them. Uh, But don't be surprised if they don't like you because of it. But that's their issue. Between them and God, that's not your issue. Thank you for the question, Terry. Fred wants to know, what does the Bible say about spanking kids? Um, Fred, you know, our our world, our culture just hates this. But um, the Bible says the greatest child-rearing book ever written, the book of Proverbs, says if you spare the rod, you will spoil the child. Um, you know, when we spank our kids, um, we're not going to kill them. That's certainly not our intent. Uh, it is not abuse. Uh, it's training. It's training. Now, I certainly don't believe in spanking older kids. There are other ways when, when kids are old enough that you can sit down and reason with them uh, or or take things away, punish them. Um, in other ways, I mean, we, we can be more creative than we are. But um, when they're small, and you can't you can't reason with a two-year-old, I, I think then then uh, a controlled spanking, explaining what it is, never ever ever Fred done in anger. Uh, a controlled spanking is a good training tool. Um, we spank kids here at our academy. Um, we have women that spank the girls, and and uh, men, our pastor, uh, principal, typically, uh, who spanks the, the boys. Uh, we 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 call the parents first and ask them if they want to come down and administer the spanking. Typically, they don't want to come down, so they understand that's part of what we do, and because it's what we do, um, you know what the kids are pretty. Well behaved, and unless I'm really out of loop. Now we only started school again yesterday, but but even unless I haven't heard of anybody getting spanked in a very very long time, because we've trained the kids what to do. So uh, that's what the Bible says about spanking. It's a good thing uh, done properly. I want to emphasize, Fred, never in anger. Uh, if you're angry, wait. Never ever raise your voice when you're doing it. Uh, don't misrepresent Jesus when you're disciplining your children. He disciplines you, and you know he's, he does it because he loves you. That's what needs to happen with our kids. Thank you for the question. We've got Lucy on line one. Lucy, thank you for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm trying to help you for the phones not to be so quiet right now.
3: <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
2: um I what I was thinking about uh, a couple of days ago. I heard a new song on the uh, K Love radio, and it the title or part of the lyrics say, um, "I was saved in a church parking lot" or something like that. And it started me thinking. I wonder um, if you know the people that I know. I'm going to start asking them where exactly were you saved? Mm -hmm. Because you've told us that um, you were saved on a street in Pomona, on a sidewalk in Pomona, California. Yeah, actually Upton, uh,
3: California, but that's close.
2: Oh, Upton? Okay. Uh, And so I thought I'd tell you exactly where I was when I got saved. I was in East Los Angeles, California. I had just I heard a, uh, a Sunday school lesson. I was about 14 years old. And the teacher, Clara, she told us that everyone needed to make a conscious decision about Jesus and whether or not we believe him and follow him, and we need to do it before we die. So I... For some reason, I had never heard that before. I was a pastor's daughter all my life, and, uh, and it finally clicked that, wow, I haven't done that yet. And, uh, and so Clara told me, um, I, I asked her, well, how can I do that? What, what do I need to do? And she says, okay, we'll find a private place after class. And we will um, will go through um, the, the plan of salvation is what she gave me. And I prayed to receive Jesus. And it just happened to be in a storage closet just <laughs> off the sanctuary, sitting on two uh, boxes of books or something. And that's where I gave Jesus my whole life and praise the lord he took me seriously (laughs) so um i encourage people that um that are kind of shy and not wanting to go up to let people know up at the front of the church that they are having uh, a moment with jesus that is very necessary but to be saved Jesus is with you wherever at the moment you want to be saved uh, and you want him to be in your life uh, there is no regulation of where you need yep. to make that decision and mm-hmm. so I just thought I'd uh, put my two cents in yeah. and see what to do with it do you have any comments?
3: I, I do and that that was worth more than two cents Lucy, thank you very very much um, um Paul is always asking people when they come into church. And we get a lot of people coming here new and, and we don't know anything about them. And um, Paul says, oh, well, when were you born again? And that's kind of uh, similar to Lucy saying, I asked people, where were you when you were saved? Um, those are things that we ought to know. Um overwhelmingly, most of the time that's that's something that people really really need to to remember and go sort of revisit uh often uh with with a grateful heart toward the lord but um um you know funny, you talk about the song I got saved in a church parking lot um because of our radio programs, this one in the teaching programs. Um, we've had a lot of people over the years who would say, you know, I came and I didn't want to come in. And so I just sat in the parking lot and listened. And and um, um, I was, was afraid, afraid to come in. And uh, for some it was a real spiritual battle. Um, but we've had a bunch of people tell us they got saved in the parking lot. And then they would come into the church the next time, that kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, you can give your heart to Jesus Christ anywhere. You know, Jesus said, and, and there are people that hate altar calls or invitations, because it makes them feel conspicuous and they're a little bit embarrassed. Uh, I tell people all the time, we need to get over ourselves. But the reality is that Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. So the public profession of faith is important. It's sort of, we're taking that step of faith and we don't care who knows it. It's sort of like uh, baptism before we get baptized. And, um, um, you know, we want to give everybody a chance every time they come to church to uh, to leave here a believer in Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lucy. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Um, is that right? We only have four minutes? Nope. I, thought, I didn't know we had the time. Uh, Luis says, is the Holy Spirit given before or after being baptized? Um, uh, Luis, the Holy Spirit is given when you get saved. When you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, when you repent of your sins, when you're born again, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, um, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is what we do out of obedience that demonstrates we are saved. So when we are baptized, we're just declaring publicly to the world that now I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And from this day forward, I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, But the Holy Spirit is given. He comes in us. Literally, he comes in us and seals us. Ephesians 1 says with a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, that, that, that deposit given by God is a guarantee that we're going to make it to the end that we're going to get to heaven. And if, if God is the one making the guarantee, then I guess it's a guarantee that we can pretty well depend on. And uh, so that's when the Holy Spirit is given to us. Uh, there is a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit. Only believers can, can receive it. And that's when he comes up on us in power. And sometimes, Luis, uh, that can be very dramatic. Other times, it's just very ordinary, but it is triggered by obedience. God gives the Holy Spirit in power to those who obey. Great question. Um, Miguel, this will be my last question today. John MacArthur has a book about Lordship Salvation. What is your take? Miguel, I love the book. Uh, I, I think MacArthur's a little heavy-handed in it. Uh, but the idea, I think, is is uh, absolutely biblical, absolutely good doctrine. Uh, what he's saying is, if you really saved, Jesus is your Lord. If he's your Lord, he's your boss. And if he's not your boss, if you're not doing what he says, what makes you think you're a Christian? Now, this was a book that came out early in my years with the Lord. I think I was maybe uh, just four or five years old in the Lord. When, when MacArthur released that book and it caused a firestorm of controversy uh, I didn't find anything controversial about it again John MacArthur can be heavy handed as I said but uh, the book is, is rock solid um, and I think the idea is simply saying uh, how dare we claim Jesus as our Lord if in fact he's not in charge of our lives and Miguel John MacArthur has said this in much harsher terms than I do but, but um, uh, he fully believes that half of the people sitting in churches aren't safe. And it's because they have no obligation to obey the Lord. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So it's a book that I would recommend. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.